This chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, is a favourite of many Christians because it contains a verse after verse of uplifting, wonderful truth. And it's been a source of great comfort and a source of great blessing to so many of God's people. And it's our privilege this morning uh, to be able to just look at a small part of it. But before we get into the bit that I want to, to look at just a little bit more by way of introduction, this is what one writer has to say about this eighth chapter of Romans in a book called Supernatural Living for Natural People. I don't know if, is it on the library, Andrew? Do you know by Ortland? No, okay. Well, next time I come out, I'm going to bring a copy out for your library. It's a very easy book to read, quite a small book, but Supernatural Living for Natural People. How do human beings live supernaturally for God? Romans 8 tells you how. And the book is just works through Romans chapter 8 in 15 short, chapter, 15 short chapters. But this is what he has to say about Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Romans is powerful for renewal in God. It opens up to us the certainty of our peace with God, the ministries of the Spirit, the urgency of personal reformation, the incomparable glory of our eternal inheritance, the inexorable power of God's goodness at work in our daily lives, and the invincibility of his loving intentions towards us. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Here in Romans 8, there is refreshment enough for dry and thirsty believers. One of the things that makes it so great is the context into which it comes. What can God do for sinners like us? What can God do for people like us who are fighting, but all too often failing? Is our position hopeless? We want to live for God. There's a real and genuine desire within us to to please Him and to honour Him. But every day as Christians we know that the reality is that we fail Him. And that we actually bring Him dishonour. We do not do what we want to do. We find ourselves actually doing the things that we hate doing. Are we completely hopeless? It's what we see at the end of chapter 7. Paul cries out in chapter 7 verse 24, if you just look at that in front of you. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But the book of Romans doesn't end there, does it? He goes on and he says, thanks be to God. Who will rescue me? God will do something for me, even though I'm powerless and I'm helpless. So what is it that God is going to do? How is he going to help us with our very real and serious problems that we have? The answer doesn't come in God's law. It doesn't come by him telling us this is what you need to do and this is what you shouldn't do. It doesn't come in prescription. What else has God got that he can do for us? 
Paul's already told us the answer in the book of Romans. Told us many times the answer comes in the gospel. The answer comes in Jesus Christ. The gospel's not just something for us to be converted by. The gospel's for our whole lives as Christians. And so Paul repeats the gospel. He's already told us in this book about grace abounding more and more in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 6, he says, we're under grace. Beginning of chapter 7, he says, there's newness in the Spirit. And now in this 8th chapter of Romans, Paul takes everything that he's written about previously in the, in the letter, and he brings it all together, and he puts flesh on his bones. He expands it, and he does so gloriously. Therefore, no surprise that, that Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the book, in the greatest book in the Bible. And if this is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible, then it's the greatest chapter that's ever been written in any book in the whole world. It's a chapter about the spirit-filled, spirit-fueled life of one of God's people. The spirit-filled, spirit-fueled life of God's people. Just in passing here, Romans chapter 8 has got more mentions of the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in the Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible talks more about the Holy Spirit than Romans chapter 8. And there's so much controversy and there's so many hang-ups in Christian circles about the person in the work of the Holy Spirit. And I know that you've been spending a lot of time recently with, uh, in your series here on Sundays... Uh, looking through 1 Corinthians and what the 1 Corinthians teaches about the Spirit and dealing with some of those controversies. But don't think that all there is to know about the Spirit is controversial. Don't think that all there is that you can know about the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is something where there's disagreement and difficulty. Here in Romans chapter 8, you find out more about the Spirit than anywhere else in the whole of Scripture. And the truths that it reveals to us about the Spirit are glorious truths. So if you want to know about the Spirit, then make it your goal to study this chapter. That was just in passing. This morning, though, we're going to be focusing our attention right there at the beginning in verse 1. A summary statement of the gospel truth, which reminds Paul's readers of everything that's gone before, and it lays the foundation for everything else that is going to follow on in the rest of the chapter in the book. And this verse, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, has to be the most positive negative in the whole world. It's the most positive negative in the whole world. And before you switch off, because that sounds like complete nonsense, and it is an oxymoron, just think about it. The statement that Paul makes here is written in the negative. There is therefore now no condemnation. But never has a no looked so good. Never has a negative statement been so positively uplifting. Negative statements can be good news, can't they? You have a negative COVID test. Well, that's good. There's no cancer left. That's even better. But even that pales into insignificance 
compared to this negative statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this morning I want us to work our way through this under four headings. Firstly, I want us to see our need. I want us to see our need. Paul's statement here is not one of merely theoretical reality. Naturally, we are under condemnation. This is not a theoretical statement. It's not a statement of limited consequence. If I was to stand by that door after the service and you're leaving the building and as you walk out I say to you there is no danger from polar bear attacks in Lefkusha today. No one very superficial level. That's very reassuring, isn't it? Because none of us would like to come face to face with an angry and hungry polar bear. We are glad that we are not in danger of polar bears today. But it's a superficially reassuring truth, isn't it? Because we've never been in danger from polar bears in left culture. They're not native to left culture. They're very unlikely ever to be native to left culture. I strongly suspect that there's not even a single polar bear anywhere near Lefkosha. But I can't be sure about that. So my reassurance to you is you leave this morning. Might sound alright, but it's pretty much meaningless, isn't it? It sounds good, but it's utterly pointless. Is that the situation with what Paul is saying here? It's true but it's not really relevant to me. But absolutely not. Paul has been at pains to show in the early part of his letter what a danger we are in because naturally we all stand condemned before God. To be condemned is to be under judgment. In this instance, it's to be under the judgment of Almighty God. We are under his jurisdiction. We live in his world. We live under his law. And we stand condemned before him. Let's look at what he writes in chapter 1 in verse 18. Chapter 1 in verse 18 is the book opens up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then having done that, Paul goes to great lengths in the letter to show us that we are all sinners, that that applies to all of us. To Jew and Gentile alike. To respectable person and to scumbag alike. To the well thought of and to the despised alike. To the religious and the churchgoers. And to the irreligious and those who want nothing to do with it. Paul sums it all up and he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
in their paths of ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that life of sin, that life of godlessness, it doesn't go away. It doesn't leave us. We've already thought about those verses at the end of chapter 7. Paul, even, even as someone who has been saved, Paul still struggles with it. Before he was saved, he never struggled. It just consumed him. But even as someone who has been saved, he says, and so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says he's in the body of death. He says he's got sin living in me. He says that he's sold as a slave to sin. And the same is true for us. Every one of us, because the whole world is accountable to God as sinners. And in our natural selves, that makes us objects of wrath. Justly standing under his condemnation. And that condemnation is death. The state of being cut off from God. Being cut off from the author and the source of life. Condemnation to an eternity in hell. That is our need. That is our need that we naturally are condemned before God. But look at what Paul says. He wants to reassure his readers, there is therefore now no condemnation. Paul is emphatic, even more so in the original Greek than comes over in our English translations. The words there is are not there in the original. It's a very blunt statement instead. It just says, therefore now no condemnation. Paul blurts it out. Paul had cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? He then gives the answer, thanks be to God. But what is it then? This change, what is it? This made the difference from being born in, under condemnation to now being no condemnation. We've seen the need. What's the remedy? What is the remedy? And that's our second point, the remedy. What is it that God has done to rescue his people from the body of death? Well, he has removed their condemnation. He has removed their condemnation. He's removed his wrath from being over them. You see what Paul is writing about here in this verse. He's writing about one of these great, one of the great themes that the letter of Romans is all about. And those of you who are here at um, the Bible Academy as it was six months ago, now we looked through Romans. I won't put you on the spot and say, do you remember what we said the theme of Romans was? We said it was all about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. It was all about justification and the book was all about justification and that's what Paul is writing about here justification is being declared not guilty by God justification is being declared is not subject to the penalties of the law it's being declared is not being under condemnation 
That is what justification is. And Paul says, although we were condemned, although we were unjustified, now there is no condemnation. The penalty for our sin has been removed. The judgment that was hanging over us because we were declared guilty is no longer there because we're now declared not guilty. Paul is reminding us of the great truths that he's already written about in this letter. That's great. Remember, those of you again who were at Academy last time, we said there were high point mountain peaks in Romans and one of them comes at the end of Romans chapter 3. And great and famous verses at the end of chapter 3, Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Great gospel truths which describe the wonderful salvation that God's people have in Christ Jesus. The truths that underpin our salvation, justification again, Redemption, propitiation, and faith. We've already reminded ourselves about justification, not guilty before God. Propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath so that he looks favorably on us. Redemption, the payment of a price to release us from slavery. And all of this was God's work. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. It was God's action. That is what God has done to deal with our offensiveness to him. That is the remedy that he has provided because we naturally stood condemned before him. That is what he did to satisfy his wrath. And just as an aside, as an appetizer for next TBT in June... We will be looking, God willing, at all of those truths in far greater detail. That justification, propitiation, redemption, and faith. We'll be looking at those in far more detail than just brushing over them like we have this morning. Can we get that plug in now to get you excited about June? And we've not even started January as yet. Can you contain yourselves with the excitement? But it's because of these truths that it's possible for Paul to affirm here at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Because God is justified, because Jesus Christ was a, a propitiating sacrifice, because redemption has been paid, because of that, says Paul, that there is therefore now no condemnation. So we've seen the need, and we've seen the remedy The next heading that we consider is the recipients. The recipients. Who is it that will receive this great gift, this monumental freedom from condemnation? 
Does it come to everyone? If not, how can you make sure that you are a recipient? And Paul is absolutely clear. This is not something that automatically applies to everyone. Look again at what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This great gospel blessing is not for the whole world. It's not for everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. But it's for those and only those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not the case that there's no condemnation for those who try and make themselves good enough for God. It's not the case that there is no condemnation for those who devote themselves to their religious rituals. It's not the case that there is no condemnation for those who are are not as bad as other people, for those who are not Vladimir Putin. It's not the case that there is no condemnation for those who were born in a Christian home, in a Christian country, if such a thing exists. There is no condemnation for those, and only those, who are in Christ Jesus. And once again, Paul is picking up on something that he's written about already in the book of Romans. Union with Christ. Another great, great gospel truth. Union with Christ. The word in. It's a simple word, isn't it? Those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a simple truth, but its meaning here in this sentence is profound. To be in Christ Jesus means that we are one with him. That our whole being is tied up with his being. That our existence is bound up with his existence. It means that we are identified with him. It means that we have life in him. It means that he acts on our behalf when he acts. It means that we trust ourselves completely to him. We place our faith entirely in Christ. No, you've got you have got books on the library by uh, a Welsh preacher called Martin Lloyd Jones. This is what he had to say about this. If you've got hold of this idea of being in Christ, if you've got hold of this idea, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. He was a doctor, medical doctor, and here was his diagnosis of what most Christians are like as he went on then. Most Christian people are miserable. Most Christian people fail and fall into sin because they're depressed, because they allow the devil to depress them. Ah, they say, I have sinned, so how can I make these great statements? He says, have you never heard of the word faith? This verse is the answer of faith to all our troubles. This is what God tells us about ourselves. And he puts it in this absolute, complete, certain manner 
that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus who is sufficient. I am in Christ Jesus who is victorious. I am in Christ Jesus who is sovereign. I am in Christ Jesus who is love. I am in Christ Jesus who is eternal. I am in Christ Jesus who is perfect. I am in Christ Jesus who has that perfect communion with God the Father. I am in Christ Jesus who reigns on his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father. I am in Christ Jesus, the great prophet, priest and king. So how do you get to be in Christ Jesus? A quote from Lloyd-Jones made clear, we come to him by faith. Faith is that saving grace whereby we receive and we rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Just as he offers himself to us and in no other way. We we were sat next to a man on the plane yesterday. Paul was sat next to him. He was a a Romanian man. And um, his name was Christian and he told us he was a Christian. And he saw Paul doing his slides for TBT and so he he saw that Paul was writing about the Bible and he asked him what he was writing about. And then for three hours, Paul tried to explain to him that you are saved by faith alone, just by trusting in Jesus. Uh, he prayed that it was good soil, but it didn't appear to be good soil. He struggled and struggled and struggled for three hours and he kept coming back to I'm trying my best. I'm gonna, I am in Christ Jesus, I hope, because I think he's pleased with me. And that was all he kept coming back to. To be in Christ Jesus is not because we're good enough. It's not because Jesus is pleased with us. It's because we go to Jesus and we say, we can do nothing, please cover us. And Jesus does. Faith sees Jesus for who he is. And is the only possible hope for us in our helpless and sinful state. And faith casts ourselves humbly at his feet. Trusting him to have dealt with all of our unrighteousness. And trusting him to give us all of his righteousness. Paul told this man yesterday, I know that I'm going to heaven. And that wasn't Paul being boastful because he was saying, well, I'm more righteous than you. Paul says, I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus is my righteousness. Because Jesus is the one I'm trusting. Because I am in Christ Jesus. And I'm trusting him. That tells us, doesn't it? Faith is not some airy-fairy concept. People talk about, I wish I had your faith, or they're people of faith. 
It's some nefarious type thing. It's all about positive thinking to get you through life. That's not faith. That's delusion. Faith is Christ-centered. Faith is Christ-focused. And faith is Christ-trusting. Faith is turning our eyes out from ourselves and putting them on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's seeking what He alone can do for us. And it's resting on that. By faith, we are in Christ Jesus. And if we're in Christ Jesus, then there is no condemnation. That leads to our final point this morning then. Paul is writing this first verse of chapter 8 as a present reality to encourage his readers in the here and now. So our final point is this is a present reality. We've seen our need. We've seen the remedy. We've seen who it's for, the recipients. And we see, fourthly, that it's a present reality. Paul is not writing about something that's only a future potential promise. This is not a truth that only has end-time application. It certainly does have end-time application. It absolutely does. Paul has talked about that in Romans already. Chapter 2, verse 5, he writes about the judgment to come. He writes about the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The Bible is very clear that the whole course of history, all of our lives, all of everyone's lives, they're all heading towards this one great unavoidable day, when we will all stand before the judgment seat of the conquering Son of God. And there will be a future revelation of the wrath of God against sinners like we cannot even imagine. The day when the judge of all the earth will come to settle accounts. And on that day, the glorious truth of the gospel for those who are in Christ Jesus will be that they will not be condemned. That's true. But look at what Paul actually says here. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The matter is already settled. We do not have to wait with bated breath and trembling hearts to discover what the outcome will be. Right now. At this very moment in time, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are not condemned. We have guaranteed acquittal. We have eternal security right now. We're acquitted. The case is decided. The judgment's been delivered and the papers have been filed. This is what Paul goes on to write about further down in the chapter. If you just look down, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our glorification is written... Is being in the past tense. 
The outcome is so certain. The outcome is so sure. We're glorified because we are not condemned. And Paul goes on, verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's only one person in the entire universe who's got the power to bring charges in God's court. And that's God himself. He's the only competent prosecuting authority. There's no one else who can launch a case. There's no one else who can bring a claim. There's no one else who can lay a charge. Only God can lay charges in God's court. But it's God himself who justifies. It's God himself who declares not guilty, who releases from condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is no one else who can possibly bring any charge against those who are in Christ Jesus. That is why there is no condemnation right now as a present reality, because no one has got the power to bring any charges against us. Even though I sin now. Even though I fail now. Even though I'm a wretched man here and now. Who can bring a charge against me. There will never be a charge that will ever stick against me. And that is absolute mind-blowing truth when I look at the sin in my own life. When I look at my daily failures. To know that no charge could ever be brought against me. And it's not because I'm a wily, wheeler-dealing, brazen-out politician like Donald Trump. Unless he comes to Christ, charges will one day stick against him. And it's not because I'm Teflon-coated. I don't know if you have the phrase, you know that phrase in England, we say something Teflon-coated means they've got that non-stick material from a pan. It's like it's all over them. And whatever charge is thrown against them, well, everything just slides off them. No charge can be brought against me, not because I'm Teflon-coated, but no charge can be brought against me because I'm Christ-coated. I'm Christ-coated. And that's the same for all of his people. However many potential charges might get thrown, they slide off because I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. I'm in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking peace into the storms of our souls. He's calming that inner turmoil that he so painfully described at the end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin because I find that I do the things I don't want to do and I'm not doing the things that I do want to do and that I know that I ought to do. I fail, I fall, I let God down, I dishonor him. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is this your joy and your comfort this morning? And Pastor Andrew said, Amen. Can you say Amen to that this morning? Is this your hope? 
the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It's compelling. And he holds it out to each of us this morning. He holds it out to each of us, believer and unbeliever alike. This is not just something for unbelievers. It is for unbelievers. You need this. But it's a truth for us believers. We need this. To those of us who are in Christ, he says, grasp hold of the reality of your situation. Understand in whom you stand. Because if you do, it will have a radical impact on the way you live. Paul goes on to describe in the rest of this chapter. He says, glory in the gospel. Live the gospel. Because you are no longer condemned. I don't know most of you in this room. There will be some in this room, I'm sure, who currently stand condemned before God. Because you're not in Christ Jesus. Because you've not humbled yourselves before the Lord Jesus. You've not put your faith in him. Because you're still like that man on the plane. Who's trusting himself. Trusting that he is going to be alright because he can do just a little bit of enough. Jesus says to you this morning. Let go of all of that. And come to me. And I will set you free. Come to me. And I will take you from being under condemnation. Why would you want to go out of those doors this morning condemned before God? When you can go out of those doors with no condemnation hanging over you. Respond to the offer of the most positive of negatives. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray before we sing our final praise. Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the glory of the gospel. Lord, we praise you because we know the sin in our lives. Lord, we know, we don't know all of it, Lord. We only know a part of it. You know it all. Lord, how bad we are, how much we fail you, how we live in rebellion against you. Lord, even those of us who are saved, Lord, how much we let you down, how much we dishonor you. And yet we thank you that the gospel deals with that. Thank you for the glory of the gospel that deals so comprehensively with that. That the Lord Jesus Christ is such a perfect and wonderful saviour. That you offered him up as a propitiating sacrifice to avert your wrath from us. To, to justify us. That we stand before you not guilty. That we are set free. Lord, we praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ that there is no condemnation. Lord, we praise you that we do not fear your wrath. We praise you that we do not look forward to judgment, but we look forward to eternal life. We praise you that we look forward to perfection. We praise you that we look forward to being with you and to being with your Son and to being everything that you made us to be. 
Lord, we praise you that you should do so much for us in him. We pray that all of us today might fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, that we would lift up our eyes to him and that our hearts would be overflowing in love and in praise and wonder. Lord, we pray that you would be honoured and glorified as we do that. Lord, that you would be exalted in our midst and in our lives. And Lord, may this be the spur that drives us on to serve you in this week ahead. Lord, whether we're here, or whether we're at work, and Lord, whatever it is that we're doing, we pray that we would live for you this week, Lord, knowing and glorying in the fact that we are no longer under condemnation. Lord, for those of in our midst who, who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that you would come to them and have mercy upon them. We pray that you would drive them to their knees before you, that they might humble themselves before you. Lord, may we see the joy of sins forgiven today. Lord, may we know that the church of Jesus Christ being added to. So hear our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.